Let me add my welcome to others who've welcomed you today. My name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I say that to those of you who are guests or those online maybe just joining us. Um, We are one church and two congregations, um, and so Rob Sweet, our lead pastor, is teaching at Brentwood today. But it's rooted deeper than that in terms of plurality. We believe in a plurality of leadership in all areas of ministry, and that includes the pulpit. So you're going to hear from me today and you know, next week you hear from Rob and we want the folks to be on the word and, and not on the teacher. We come to a supremely significant text in our study through John's gospel. We'll probably be saying that a lot in John's gospel, but you'll see what I mean in a moment. This is the story Brian just read of him turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana. You remember in our study through the book of Ruth, Rob and I invited you to hold this phrase in your mind um, all the way through the study. There's more than meets the eye. And so we say, you gotta hold that when you study Ruth because there's the surface story, but then there's this story underneath about this is who God is and this is what it requires of us to walk with him and know him. Um, And what I'll say about this particular story is there is way more than meets the eye to this particular story. And over the years, um, when we're not careful, you know, we can get into some allegorizing or spiritualizing or seeing things that look like they're there. I, I don't know, they could be, but, but we, can, we can get off our rails a bit on this particular story. And, and so we wanna make sure that we stay within the guardrails of, of hermeneutics or proper biblical study. And so before I get to the text, we're gonna do a little Bible study working some principles out in terms of Bible study and primarily the king of Bible study principles. And that would be context. Not Derrick Henry, by the way. I just thought of that when I said that. No, the the, the king of biblical hermeneutics is context. Where does this particular story fit? What's before it? What's around it? We're gonna look at historical, cultural, biblical, theological context. If we get this right, I, I, I do believe this that this story will be like one of those little sponges, you know, the little sponges that are nothing. They're just a little little ball and your kids put drops on it and then it starts to unravel and unfurl and all of a sudden it's like a giant elephant or a palm tree or something like that. It's like, whoa, that story, that's in the story. Yes, indeed, that is in the story. Context begins with, we're gonna start with the book context. So the book of John, there's a bit of introductory comments I'm gonna have in this, but if we're gonna understand this particular text and not get off the rails on it, not see something that's not there, then we've got to hold it within its book context. And one of the ways you do that is you go, what's the purpose of the book? To do that, we actually start not in John chapter two, but John 20, we've been there before, but go there again, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Listen to John as he speaks and tells us why he put this book together. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A lot of books you all don't have such a clear purpose statement. John does. And therefore, we've got to keep the purpose in mind. When we read this story, we got to go, how does it serve that purpose? You remember I said John wrote with ruthless selectivity? Remember that in the introduction? 
Because later John says, if I put everything Jesus did in a book, the world wouldn't hold it. Hyperbole, of course. But it's to say there's so much I've left out, which means we don't, we're not gonna worry about what he left out. We're gonna go, well, what did he put in? And we're gonna give it its proper weight. Think about one of the ways we can get even more honed in on purpose in part is to go, well, how did John organize his book? Because clearly it's not chronological. I mean, things happen out of order in this book. Things get more attention than others than even the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you get, well, how did he organize it? So bear with me on this. And then we're gonna slide this text into its proper slot. But think about the book as a whole, and you can do it broadly in two categories, from chapter one to, ch- to chapter 12, first part of the book. We've all, we theologians over, over the years have recognized, it seems John has organized this, to, this first part to be what they call the book of signs. So chapter one through 12 is the book of signs. Chapter 13 through 21, they note is the book of glory. What do you mean signs and glory? Well, the book of signs, this chapters one through 12, I'm gonna keep in mind two key words. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, they're, they're synonymous, I think synonymous or similar, John's the outlier. In those gospels, when Jesus does a miracle, um, the word used there is dunamis, dynamite, dun- power. So he, he, he calms the story, says it's, it's a dunamis, it's an act of power. And so that emphasis is on, I'm gonna give you two words, power of. Do you see the power of Jesus, the king of glory? When we come to John, he's still doing these same miracles, if you will, but John does not use the term dunamis. He uses the term semeon, which means sign, which is why, as Brian read it, he said, this is the first sign, not dunamis, but semeon. And this is really, really important. When in the synoptics, it's look at the power of, sign puts the emphasis this way, look what it's pointing to, look what it's pointing at. If you're in Yosemite or you know, some park, something like that, and you see a sign and it says bear crossing, you don't stop the car and say, all the kids get out, let's all look at the sign. You go, what's it pointing to? And so you go, hey, everybody, over these next few miles, everybody be on the lookout for a bear to be, a real bear to be crossing the road. So when we see this, I'm gonna say this to you over and over again. Don't get stuck on the sign. But what is the sign pointing to. By the way, in chapters one through 13, John gives us seven signs, okay? There'll be seven signs that are pointing to the person and work of Jesus. So that's the book of signs, but then the book of glory, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this, just to say glory is God's character revealed. And what we see revealed in this back end of the story is the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is God's greatest glory, Jesus is gonna say so himself, that that is the fullness of God's glory in the work of Christ in redemption. Everybody with me on that? So we got these two parts to the book. Another way to think of this, just extra credit, John 1, 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Chapters one through 12, the light shines in the darkness. Chapters 13 through 21, and the darkness cannot overcome it, resurrection. So there's the the book context. 
Well, then I want to ask you this question. Okay, that's the book context. So what's the immediate context? You know, where, where does this story happen in this book? And again, we're in the book of signs. To do that, we got to look at what comes right before the story. So now flip all the way back. Now you're at chapter one, verses 50 and 51. Rob covered this last week. Jesus is answering Nathanael who said, oh my gosh, you saw me? Uh, you could see me under the fig tree and, and you weren't even there. It's like me saying, hey, Sally, I saw you in Knoxville walk across the street. And she's going, how can you see me walk across the street? You're in Nashville. I'm in, to, my, to my daughter, Sally, who's there. No, no, no. So, so it's like, whoa, how'd you do that? And Jesus responds to Nathaniel and says in verse 50, because I said to you, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. It's kind of a head scratcher. Rob, you know, did a brilliant job helping us understand what they heard when they saw that and what we need to see when we hear those words. And it's simply this, Jesus is saying that on me, in me, heaven and earth will meet. You know, it's like he, you know, he's the portal between heaven and earth, heaven and earth touch, boom. And what happens right here is Jesus. This is the connecting point between heaven's realities and the realities of earth. And when he says this, you, you think that was something, you're gonna see greater things. Can you imagine the anticipation of the disciples? Like, man, he just did that. What are we gonna see next? Same for the original readers, which is where we always go. What do the original readers see and understand the story to be? I would say there was a great sense of anticipation. I said, we're in the book of signs. I said, there are seven signs. Jesus has just said, you're gonna see greater works than these. And then what we find out next is, oh, wait, now the sign happens. And it's the first sign. The weight of that, quite frankly, is profound. I'll let this quote help us. This is from G.L. Borchert, New American Commentary, a really good commentary on John. Just read it as I, as I read it, follow along in your mind's eye. The positioning of this sign in the gospel obviously is of crucial importance because it's not merely intended to be the first by number of such miraculous events, but also functions as the head, i.e. the source, the clue, the key, the arche to the signs of Jesus. This is my highlight or bold. The one who understands this sign should understand the point of all the signs. So the, the, the weight of getting this one right, you see, is profound, is it not? If we don't get this one, the others won't come as clear. But I'm just telling you, if we get this one, and may I say to you, we will, then all the others blossom, honestly, as we read them. Look at this quick outline. I've just used three descriptive phrases for our text. It's what happens. Verses one through five, the wine ran out. Verses six through eight, the good wine is served. Verses nine through 12, the disciples believe. We're gonna look at each section. I'm gonna have some application at the end. And we're gonna ponder then, what does this mean for me to believe this? Let's start with the wine ran out. On the third day, verses one through five, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And I'll just pause there to say that you never ever wanna speak like that, men, to any woman or wife. Um, But we'll talk about why he said it in a moment. He said, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's get in the cultural context of the day. A wedding was perhaps one of the brightest seasons of life in in their day. Um, You know, for, for, for them, a wedding and birth, just like for ours, aren't those like the two highlights of life? But let me say this, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta heighten the greatness of weddings for them because God himself lifts up weddings. We'll talk about that as we move through the passage. So this is a time when living under Roman rule, they, they, they celebrated deep and wide and broadly as a community when there was a wedding. It all began with a betrothal, which would have been parents you know, arranging a marriage for their kids. Betrothal period could go a year or more. A betrothal is way stronger than an engagement. It really is for, in our, for practical purposes, it's like they're married, but you know, they don't consummate the marriage. They don't live together. It's a time of preparation. You remember, jo- you remember Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And yet we read when Joseph found out she was pregnant and they hadn't had sex, he said, how do I quietly divorce her? And you go, wait, they're not even married. Well, betrothal was kind of carried much of the weight of marriage. So when the time came to be married, the, the bridegroom and his friends, these, you think of some of the parables of Jesus, you would, when the sun went down, they would take torches and, and, and they would go and they would not go straight to her home. They would wander throughout the city just letting everyone in town know, I am going to get my girl. And you know, it's, a, it's, it's community wide. And eventually it'd get to her house. They would carry her all the way back to the groom's father's home. And at that point, there wasn't a wedding. At that point, the party started. It could go as long as a week. Wine, food, fellowship, dancing, celebration. That's a lot of food. (laughs) And it's a lot of wine. And it was the responsibility of the groom and his family to provide all of that. I've said this before, but I need more signers of my petition. You know, my son's married. I've got two daughters in the wings. (laughs) And I want us to go back to the biblical protocols of marriage. And it is the groom's family that covers all of that. Um, In that time, we note in our story, the worst thing that could happen happened. And you go, Lloyd, there's a lot worse that could happen at a wedding than what happens here. No, put your cult, put, put, there's more than meets the eyeglass lenses on. The wine ran out. See, we don't feel that as big, really, do we? No, no, this is, this is, this is terrible in this context. You've got to remember this. From earliest times, wine was a symbol for Israel of God's goodness. 
So, so you, you know, again, you gotta think of this. God said, I want, I want them to know just how good I am. The abundance of wine communicated that to them. Wine equals joy. That's what the rabbis said. Someone's gonna come up to me afterwards and, 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 and ask me or say, you know, I don't think the wine was alcoholic. It's fine if you think that. And I'm not throwing anybody on the bus on this, but I just wanna say, let me just answer it broadly. Exegetically, that, that, that really cannot stand up to, to I think, proper exegesis. Um, I, I don't think even if we, if we, there could be non-alcoholic grape juice, of course. But when the Bible speaks of the wine and the wine that, you know, was festive, it, it was alcoholic wine. And it's, I think if you just think for a moment, it's hard to look at some of the passages that warn against excessive drinking and think that's non-alcoholic. And it wasn't talking about the beer, it's talking about the wine most of the times. So I found a quote, and I think this is very good. I'm not trying to be silly when I say this. I thought this summarized it so well. Frederick Bruner, excellent theologian. He said, made this statement. I go, well, there's my statement. There's a statement I could hold to. He simply said this, in the Bible, wine is celebrated. Drunkenness is deplored and condemned, period. And I think that's a good summary, biblically, for how they understood and used and saw wine. Well, it's a moment of crisis. The wine has run out. Again, we've already said, oh my gosh, wine equals God's goodness. Wine equals joy. Wine is celebration. There are cases where wedding guests have sued the groom and his family because the wine ran out or the food ran out. And beyond that, just set aside the legal, the shame in a shame-based culture to run out of wine was huge. Mary, it seems, had some responsibilities, right? So y'all, let's just, let's just think in normal terms. Why is Mary there? Maybe it was a dear friend of hers whose son was getting married. Uh, perhaps it was a son or a daughter who Jesus grew up with. The, doesn't this happen today? Why do we show up at weddings? So we're part of the family. You know, that's what's going on. It seems Mary carried some responsibility. And so maybe she just said, hey, let me help you with the wedding. And, I'll, and she was helping make this wedding happen. To our ears, it sounds like an abrupt response. I, I made a silly of it a moment ago, but it only sounds abrupt to us because we're 2,000 years removed, 2,000 years of culture removed. When we think of context again, we go, okay, twice in this gospel, Mary is mentioned. But not by name, by the way, just the mother of Jesus. Here, okay, and then on the cross. And you know, on the cross, he used the same word. He said, woman, this is who's gonna take care of you, John. You see, it's, a, it's, it's not disrespectful is what I'm trying to say. We don't quite have an equivalent for it in English, but he was honoring his mother. And yet, we've gotta hold this, not the woman part, but the rest of his words were a gentle rebuke to Mary. He, there was correction in his words to her. It's an awkward, it's awkward to us translating the Greek to English. It's what, what, do, what, do, what does this situation, what do you and I have in common in this? It's kind of real broken English. So this, if I could paraphrase it, what, what he says to her in terms of meaning is simply this. Mother, 
your responsibilities at this wedding have nothing to do with my responsibilities as the son of God come to save humanity from her sin. There's no commonality between us, mom. It's what she understood and it's what he intended to communicate. He says, it's my hour's not come. Now this is gonna, we're gonna cover this later. Whenever he says my hour's not come, he is speaking of a future moment in time. And I'll say this later, but I'll, I'll say it now and later. And he's speaking of that hour His hour is when he is crucified, buried, and raised from the grave. It's the work of redemption that he does on the cross. That's his hour. That's what he's living for. That's why he's come. Does that make sense? So he says, it's not yet come. Now, I find this beautifully mysterious. He says, my hour's not yet come, but then he does something for his mom in the wedding. How about that? That somehow in in God's providence, God used his mom to, to, to turn the clock on, on the revelation of his glory and Jesus responds. I just think that's wonderful because Jesus only does what he sees his father doing and he says, my hour's not yet come, but then it's like green light, go. And he does. The wine ran out, verses one through five. The good wine is served in verses six through 10. Note again in your text, Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, i.e. a bit inebriated, a a bit of effects of the alcohol, (laughs) can't tell the difference now, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. In Luke 11, Jesus is invited by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, to have a meal together. Jesus accepts the invitation, goes in, sits down ready to eat. And the Pharisees look at each other and whisper, can you believe this? This guy says he's from God and he's sitting at the table and he hasn't even washed his hands. They're all up in Ryle because Jesus didn't clean his hands. Now, not hygienically per se, right? Because yeah, you want to clean your hands. Kids, wash your hands before you eat your dinner. You do that. But what, is, what were the Pharisees thinking of? He hasn't ceremonially cleansed his hands. He hasn't had his hands you know, cleansed by the ritual jars with, with the purification water to be ceremonially clean. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And so in this story, we've got this tension that's now set up. There are these six jars of water for purification. When people came to the wedding, they had to not just clean their hands where they eat, but be cleansed spiritually. And what happens all through the gospel of John is that Jesus sets himself, and I'm trying to use the right words, and I don't know that I am, but he sets himself in opposition to the religious leaders, their rituals, 
to, to the law of God as they interpret it. There's, there's, you gotta do all that. You gotta wash your hands. You gotta sacrifice these animals. You gotta do stuff, the law itself. And then you have Jesus and all through John's gospel, you're gonna see this. He stands over here and says, um, that's irrelevant now. And I wanna be careful because Jesus would never says the law of God's irrelevant. And he, he would never say the law of God is bad, not at all. But Jesus will say, and, and what we understand is that all of the Old Testament and all the rituals and the law itself, it was all pointing to Messiah. It was all to get, him, get ready for the one who would come, who would be the lamb slain for the salvation. You see what I'm saying? And so now Jesus is living his life and they're still living in that Judaism. And Jesus is saying, I, everything you're doing points to me and therefore you don't need that anymore. Are you with me? So this is the tension that we see in the text itself. When the master of the feast, think head waiter, you know, wedding coordinators, uh, tasted the water that had become wine, he knew immediately. He said, this, the quality of this wine, oh my, it, it, it's the best wine. And it, and it strikes him and think of this language even, he calls the bridegroom and he says, he goes, this bridegroom has flipped everything on its head. That's worth holding. This bridegroom has just flipped it all over. And, and he saved the good wine to last. Once again, more than meets the eye. It's what Jesus was doing was in these jars that specifically were made for ritual purification. He has them filled to the brim. Ritual purification. All these jars, wine. Jesus, who is gonna die on that cross for our sins. His blood poured out, his life poured out. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's table in a minute. I hope you hold that thought. We hold the wine symbolic of his blood. You see what, it's, it's under the waterline in a way in the story and we get to see it. Most here couldn't really see it. That, that all of that wine, by the way, it was more than was needed. There was an abundance of wine here. We're, we're going 120, 180 gallons. They couldn't drink it all. It was, it was, in a sense, an inexhaustible supply of wine. And you go, why so much wine? Let me reframe, the, let me reframe these jars. This is God's goodness. This is forgiveness. This is mercy. This is grace. This is the kindness of God. How much do you need? There's more than enough. It's inexhaustible. <laughs> this is what's happening in the story. How do I know that's what's happening in the story? Well, I'm gonna suggest the text tells us in the last part where the disciples believed. The wine runs out, the good wine served, and then it just says the disciples believed. Look at verses 10 and 11, or 11 and 12, I'm sorry. This is this, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. 
What did we say John's purpose in writing this was? John 20, verse 30, 31. So, so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, son of God, and believing you would have life in his name. That's the purpose. And it's hard to argue that, oh, John's purpose has just been fulfilled. The disciples believed. It's not they believed Oh, that's one. No, no, there's there's a sense in which they were beginning to see this is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. To manifest his glory is to show the glory of the Father. It's to show the character of God. How is it that Jesus manifested his glory in this? Again, you gotta put the lens on and go, he manifests his glory because he's showing redemption is coming through his shed blood that he provides we're gonna to get to the back end later. It's gonna be a while before we get there, but John 17, one, on the eve of his crucifixion, right on the eve of his death, burial, and resurrection, he prays and says, Father, the hour has come. So right here, over here, he's saying the hour's not yet come. But when he gets there, he says, the hour's come. Well, what's the hour? And he says this, the hour has come. Glorify your, glorify your son that the son may glorify you and what does he do after that? He goes to the cross, he's killed, he's buried and raised again. Those who had eyes to see believed. It's an interesting progression, sign, glory, belief. Sign, glory, belief. Sign, don't stare at the sign. <laughs> stare at what the sign's pointing to, Christ and believe so much, so much in this story. I've got five principles, five lessons I wanna offer you. I know we don't always do this many, but, but I've, I had a lot more and I said, well, let me get five. And by the way, when I give these to you, we're gonna take a moment, a moment, we're gonna take a moment and, and we're gonna go, well, how do I live this? What is God calling me to trust him for, believe? Here's the first observation I'll make, principle you can hold if you will. The wine of this world tastes good until you taste the wine that is Jesus. I get why we, me and you are caught up in the things of the world, you know, whether it's money, sex, power, prestige, influence. Why, why, are, we, why are we chasing that? Why are you getting so hung up that? You know why? Because it tastes good. And the wine of this world tastes good. And it'll always taste good. I'm telling you, it'll always taste good until you taste the wine that is Jesus. That's it. Until you taste the wine that is Jesus. Why do I say this? When the, wedding, when the steward of the wedding, the head wait, waiter came and said, you've saved the good wine until last. May I suggest that before the wedding began and while it was going on, he had tasted the wine that had been served. And he did not consider it poor wine, did he? Because now he's saying, you've saved the, he, he didn't consider the first wine bad wine because normally you save the bad wine for later. I wanna suggest he considered the good wine good. <laughs> and the, world, the wine of this world is good. The other thing about the wine of this world, y'all to keep in mind is it's always running out. Maybe it hadn't run out for you yet, but I assure you there will come a moment that it's gone and you're left questioning, that's it? It doesn't do for me what it used to do. It's always running out. 
not the wine that is Jesus. Secondly, while all benefited from the sign, just a few believe the sign, be in the few. That's the exhortation to you and me. Be in the few. Think about this wedding ceremony going on for a week, probably. All the people, only the disciples, it says, believed. Now, I'm not saying no one else did, I don't know, but I find it fascinating that he would be so careful to record that the servants saw it all. Notice how careful he is. Like, like you know, some, you know, you go, I wish I could see Jesus do a miracle, then I would believe. Well, they did. What, what can they say? They, they, they got the water. They filled the jars. They carried water to the head waiter and he tasted it and said, this is the best wine. <laughs> but we don't have any record that they believed. Here's the thing we need to see. Those at the wedding feast, there's, there's, you know, those who, who drank all that good wine <laughs> per se, they didn't see what, what we now get to see. Look, we've read the story and we know what happened. And so we're accountable for that. I'm just saying, they, 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 weren't, they didn't know that this happened. We do. May we be in the few that believe. There's a third principle, and it's simply this. Let's listen to Mary. What do I mean by that? Let's just listen to what she said. Do whatever he tells you, period. <laughs> that is very good advice. Think of, the, think of it this way. Mary felt some measure of responsibility for solving this problem, rightly so. I would say it, could say it this way. You know, Mary was working her tail off because she felt she had some measure of responsibility and, and control. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus said what he said, I picture it like this. She stepped back, she looked at the servants and she just said, whatever he says, do it. In other words, I'm removing myself and whatever Jesus says, do it. There's a sense to which, a very real sense you understand, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to come to a place in her own life where she submitted her own life to her son, the son of God, the savior of the world. And I think that's part of what's happening here. Mary, let go. I am not in control but that man is. It's also a parenting thing in here I, I find fascinating. I, I wanna suggest for, for those of you who are so parent, parenting kids, and we'll obviously we always remain parents, but there's a sense to which she, she let go of her son. She, she trusted her son. And, and, and I know you're thinking, Lloyd, if I was raising Jesus, I could let him go, you know? <laughs> but I'm not raising Jesus. Well, Two things I would say, you know that parent, the whole process of parenting is letting them go. You do your best, but then they gotta, they got, you gotta let them go. Um, and then I'll say this again, I, when they're younger, I get it. Obviously you don't give them free reign, but if your child comes to put their faith in Jesus genuinely, then you and I have to come to the place where we trust Christ in them and we step back. You know what I'm saying? There's, some, there's something I, I think very profound and powerful in that. I saw a teenager this morning 
poker dad when I said that. You gotta let him go. She was like, I went. Now there's context for this, right? Fourth, don't think Jesus has come to make your life better. He's come to transform you. Y'all, this isn't an improvement story. This is a transformation story. This is something was something and now it's not what it was. I think that's why it's the first sign because it's a sign of transformation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, new has come. This is what Jesus does. He transforms us. And then fifth, I'll say it this way, there is but one thing that is to define every decision in life, God's will. This would be appropriate for all of us. Family relationships would not be the determining factor in Jesus's life. This is a point in his life where he said, I love you, mom, but that'd be true for all who follow Christ. Jesus himself saying that. His allegiance would be to his heavenly father. And, and, and I just wanna get very practical for you and I to say this is, you know, life is, if you're following Jesus, then life is about what Jesus wants for you and I not what any other human being does per se. And so is our allegiance there? And, and does, do our decisions run through a grid? You know, Jesus, Jesus, by the way, he'll say it later. He says, I'm only doing what my heavenly father's doing and he tells me to do. What a wonderful guide for life. You know, one of the ways we can think about this is your own, your own personal mission in life. Do you understand your mission to be God's will or your own or some other objective? One, one way to think about this, and we've talked about this a good bit recently, is, is uh, our mission as a church. It's not a corporate mission, it's personal. It's, if you're a member of this church, do, do you embrace this mission? And I think this is a good place to start. What's our mission? Becoming a community of people who follow Jesus with their whole heart and help others do the same. And so just take it in a practical, should we buy that house or stay? Should we move uh, or, or remain? Do I take that promotion? Where do I go to school? Uh, what are we gonna do about this particular activity for the kids? What am I gonna do? Just any, 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 any situation in life, do, do you run it through this grid? And here's a helpful one. Okay, let's run it through this grid. Does it move me into community or away? Does it help me follow Jesus with my whole heart or does it hamper that? Hey, if we do this, does that help us help others follow Jesus? It, it's running through the grid of God's, Will. Here's five applications. I'm gonna ask you to take a moment, read through them and trust the Holy Spirit to show you what your own application is. What is God saying to you out of this story? What's the sign pointing to for you at this moment in your life? And trust God in that. I'm gonna give you a moment to consider that.
Father, as we consider this story, this story of the first sign, we ask that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us, you would awaken our eyes to see what we need to see. Not the sign per se, but what it's pointing to and then what it means for us. How do we live it? How do we choose faith right where we are? This is our prayer. Amen. If you would take the elements for the Lord's table, please. If you are not a member of fellowship, but you have placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are welcome at this table. It's the Lord's table, not ours. There are elements outside. Take the bread and then take the cup, please, and let's open and hold them. I I, I simply want to offer this, that in this story, when Jesus fills those jars of purification, the water of purification, and he changes them to wine, I've got to believe he knew what his hour was. I, I, I I don't have to, it's clear he knew what the hour was. And so even as he changed that water to wine, his eyes were on his hour where his literal blood would be poured out and what it would cost him. And and I just think about this, that the celebration went on with all that wine, but only a few believed, but it didn't keep him from giving it, did it? This is the abundant grace of our God who loves us even when we're running from him. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we remember in your table today out of this story that your love was pursuing us even as it's pursuing every person at that wedding who ignored it or who never even saw it. But we remember that your body was broken on our behalf and your blood was shed to cleanse us from all our sin and to clothe us with your righteousness and secure us in a relationship with you and the Father. Your body broken, we remember and we say thanks. Receive the bread. And for your bloodshed symbolized in this cup, we proclaim your life, death, and resurrection claim you're coming again one day to set all things right. Receive the cup. Let's stand together. Let's lift our voices with this story in mind. Do you know in Isaiah 25, 600 years, Jesus, 600 years before Jesus, Isaiah, God's speaking to his people and he's he's given his people a picture of the future that is theirs. And when God wants to give a picture of his goodness and his future for his own, listen to how he describes that future, Isaiah 25. He says, you will enjoy a rich feast of food, a feast of well-aged wine. Look, they didn't sit there and go, food, wine? No, they went, yes! (laughs) You know, for them, this is as good as it gets. And then the author of our book, John, post-Jesus, God gives him a future, a vision of the future, and it's the same day, it's the same time. And John looks out there and sees it, and listen to the way John describes it. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb is at hand. When God wants us to know what he has for us, to his people, and we need to engage, we need to see it. He talks about a feast and wine and a wedding. No wonder you all, the first of seven signs is water into wine at a wedding. What did we say? Wine is the goodness of God. Let's sing of that goodness that pursues us with an everlasting love.